This is Commerce Shenanigans, episode 786, A Conversation with Roger Stern. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman, and this is a very special episode. It's a conversation with Roger Stern. I've long loved Roger's work in the comic book medium, and so it's very exciting to be able to have him on the podcast. Um, so I think we went for an hour, hour and a half. Um, I want to thank, uh, there's a lot of people who submitted questions either through the Marvel Masterworks Forum or the Epic Collection um, Marvel Epic Collection Facebook group, and also I think the Comic Geeks book um, uh, group as well, the Facebook group. So I want to thank all those people. I wrote them all down. I had them all listed. And then I just kind of let Roger talk. And Roger had really some really great stories. And it's so interesting. We spent an hour and a half, and I feel like we barely scratched the surface of his career. There's so many seminal things we barely even mentioned at all, or if if, if at all, only in passing. Um, so I am hoping to have him back on the show if he's uh, able to do so. Um, but it was just such a thrill to be able to talk to him. He really tells a great story, not just obviously as a writer, but he's also able to you know uh, really uh, tell a story story with his words uh, when he's speaking as well. So um, I really enjoyed this. I had a, uh, just a, an absolute blast chatting with Roger. Um, it was one of those ones that was kind of on my list of, I, I hope eventually I'll be able to uh, talk to this guy. And he, I think he mentioned, I don't know if he mentioned this on the show or not, but uh, that he had actually listened to one of the podcasts I did with um, with Ron Friends. And I was, I was I was like, oh, you listen to me. You, you listen to me. Like I, I've been following your work forever and you actually listen to something I did. That's cool. Um, but uh, yeah, so anyways, this was... Um, a really, you know, maybe not once in a lifetime because I might be able to have him on again, but um, it meant a lot to me as a fan. I've, I've enjoyed so much of Roger's work over the years, and so it was such a thrill to be able to sit down and chat with him. Uh, anyways, I'll stop prattling on because you're here to listen to Roger Stern talk, not me, but you can always email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, like the show on uh, Facebook, rate and review us on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Um, upcoming episodes, we're hoping to have uh, Dave Lanthier back on the show, working on having a uh, Judd Winnick come by for um, a bit of a creator commentary on the Exile series, which I'm super, super thrilled about. Um, and it was, that's just some of the things coming up. Um, the release schedule is going to slow down a little bit as we get closer to August the 12th. August the 12th will be uh, also the day that I release the 800th episode of Comic Shenanigans. So uh, I think in order to kind of get the release, because I, I do every two, two every week, basically I'm doing 104 episodes a year. And so I always have to kind of slow it down uh, to make sure that I don't actually do that many, um, and that I end up doing about a hundred. Um, because so I end up with like a weird period. So July is kind of, I, I thought I'd already done a skip period. Apparently I didn't, I should have really done that during the pandemic, uh, when we weren't getting new comics anymore. But anyway, so there's going to be a period in July where I think we're going to be getting a non-reviews episode and then a week later, a reviews episode covering two weeks worth of comics. And I think that's going to, the way it's going to go for about a month. So, uh, I'm excited. Episode 800 is right around the corner. I don't have anything planned for it. I don't know what to do for it. I'm just excited that I'm actually going to be able to say I've done 800 episodes of something. Yes, some of the reviews episodes have been relatively short, like 10, 10 minutes or so, but a lot of the uh, you know the even episodes have been pretty long, uh, generally. So anyways, thank you so much for coming along this ride with me, and this is, again, a great conversation with Roger Stern. Enjoy. Roger, welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. How are you doing today? Doing fine, Adam. Excellent. And how are you surviving the pandemic thus far? Uh, no problems here. Uh, 
sound and uh, all of our friends and neighbors as well. Uh, we, we do know someone who, who came down with the virus, but uh, they got help right away and uh, are over it now. So that's that's good. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that obviously uh, brings it a little bit more, makes it a bit more real when someone you know actually has it, right? Right. So everyone out there, stay smart, be like Spider-Man, wear your mask. <laughs> that sounds good. Uh, so I always like to go back to the beginning and understand, like, what, what was Little Roger like and how did comics first become part of your world? Oh, I, it's it's hard. Co- comics were always there in one form or another. You know, the... Uh, it, in the newspaper comics to begin with hmm. and yeah you know there were comics characters in like little golden books and stuff little you know storybook things you get as a as a child and I think my first ex- exposure to Superman was probably from the TV series hmm. with George Reeves which you know for, for all the low production values and some of the goofy storylines they had are, are still some of my favorites, and the great thing in those those early days uh, of the uh, the TV series, at the end of every episode, it says Superman is based on the character appearing in Superman magazines. Hmm. I'm going, really? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know that. You know, so you know, as I'm on the cusp of reading, uh, I was in the habit of going to the local drugstore on a Friday night with my parents, you know, you get a, a soda or something, and down at the end of the uh, of the uh, soda fountain counter was this rotating rack, you know, <laughs> you know, hey kids, comics, you know, and there's, look, there's Superman. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, Superman wasn't the first comic I got. It was it was probably like a Walt Disney's comics and stories or a Mickey Mouse because because the, the Disney stuff was always big. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you, you, know, you grew up reading uh, Karl Barks Uncle Scrooge stories. You know, it's like it's like a high watermark for story quality. Absolutely. But, you know, and then, then there was Superman. You know, with Archies and the Harveys and, and everything. Uh, I didn't really see Marvel comics because, well, for one thing. I'm so old, there really weren't Marvel Comics at the time. There were Atlas Comics. Mm. <laughs> and uh, they were, they stopped doing superheroes just before I started reading. And I didn't really... Also, when I was in some of my early prime comic book reading periods, Marvel had really lousy distribution in my area. Mm. You know, you'd see a, every Dell comic known to man and you know, most of the DCs and some other things and even Charlton Comics got pretty good distribution in my area for some reason and so I didn't really see uh, a Marvel comic until you know 62, 63 something like that and I'm going huh what are those <laughs> so you know go figure I'm, I'm always curious about people who are reading at that time, like uh, when they first start seeing those Marvels, because again, they stylistically were so different and kind of punk rock mm-hmm. at the time. Like, what, what as a kid, how, how much? Well, I mean, as a kid, I guess you would have been twelve, thirteen. But how much mm-hmm. does this kind of draw you in? And also, how different did it feel from what you were already reading at the time? Well, uh, Marvel sort of brought me back to comics 
because you know, I, as soon as I was able to, to read, I started getting comics and and, uh, and reading them and, and trying trying to follow because it was really a hodgepodge in those days. Even with books that got good distribution, you'd miss an issue. Hmm. You know, you know, it came out the week that I didn't get to the drugstore or something. You know, and I'm going. Oh, I've got Green Lantern 5 and Green Lantern 7. What happened in 6? You know, tearing your hair. And, uh, but uh, when I got to junior high school, I bought into the lie that, well, you're too old for comics now. You know, you're mm-hmm. going, oh, okay. You know, <laughs> grow up said it must be right. Okay, fine. And uh, a buddy of mine, uh, as I was getting into high school, uh, had an older brother who was in college, and he was reading these Marvel comics. And I'm like, I've never heard of that one. What's, what's that about? And I says, well, there's this uh, character called Spider-Man, and there's the Fantastic Four, and there's, there's the X-Men. And I'm like, really? Huh. <laughs> you know, so I, uh, yeah, next weekend, I went to the drugstore, and I Spider-Man, that's the one that Gary was talking about. And I was going, this is really good. This is this is better than the DC comics I remember. <laughs> it's much better than the Charlton comics I remember. Uh, <laughs> it's like, wow, this is amazing. And this is like, we're talking like 1967 here, 1966, 1967. And I, I started uh, buying Spider-Man with, that uh, was John Romita's issue, which was the second part of a two-part story, but it was written so well, I knew exactly what was going on, but I really wanted to read the first part of the story, mm-hmm. and because this is like before conventions, before comic book stores, you know, you look around, and you, 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 you your only recourse was like used bookstores and, and maybe flea markets. And it took me, I don't know, two or three years, but I finally found that first issue. <laughs> the, the, the and, like, and it was worth waiting for. You know, going, oh, now, oh, you know, I knew what was going on, but now I even, know even more about what's going on. <laughs> and, and the great thing was that in those days, uh, Marvel had two big, I think they, they might have been quarterly at first, but they became bi-monthly. Uh, double-size, annual-size comics, Marvel Tales and Marvel Collectors and Classics. Mm-hmm. Marvel Collectors and Classics had early Fantastic Four stories and uh, usually a Hulk story and I think Iron Man and maybe Doctor Strange. And Marvel Tales had a lead Ditko Spider-Man story and a Human Torch story and a Thor story and, and maybe, maybe Doctor Strange was in there. Anyway, when I first saw my first Steve Ditko Spider-Man story, it was like, wow, this is amazing. And I realized I knew his artwork. I'm going, I know this artwork. What do I know this artwork from? And I suddenly remembered back in 1959, I'd go to the drugstore on the on the cusp of, uh, of 1959 becoming 1960. It was New Year's Eve, 
And my folks were going out, and they had a, a babysitter and arranged and everything fine. And he says, we'll go and get you some comics, you know, to bring in the new year. Oh, great. <laughs> and one of them was Space Adventures, I think, number 33, uh, which was the very first Captain Adam story. Oh, wow. Which, uh, Ditko had, had uh, drawn, uh, written by Joe Gill. Uh, and it was an amazing story. But I was never able to find any more Captain Adam stories after that. I'd go, well, do you have it that morning? No, it's not in, oh, where is it? I don't know, I couldn't find it anymore. But maybe it was just a one-shot one story, I don't know. Turned out there were more, but I, I was never able to find them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the art stuck with me. Uh, in fact, that, that, that issue of, of Space Adventures, uh, there, were, there were three comics I read in my youth. That I read so many times and so often in a day that the cover finally separated and fell apart. <laughs> and those those three books were Space Adventures with the Origin of Captain Adam, uh, the first brave and bold appearance of the Justice League of America, mm. and The Double Life of Private Strong Number One <laughs> by Simon and Kirby. And it was just, just like those books I read to death. You know, and then I kept the coverless comics until they fell apart <laughs> but yeah but so when i saw the, the disco uh, spider-man which is I, I believe it was uh issue marvel tales were printing uh, amazing spider-man number seven which was the, the return of the vulture and i'm reading, oh this isn't i know this guy steve Ditko. he did captain adam wow this is a step up <laughs> <laughs> And it was, but and, and then later he went back to doing Captain. I'm like, I don't know those. Yeah, it's great. It's uh, it says something to your your eye that you're able to kind of remember like in a time yeah. and place where you know artists being as well known and being that recognizable came kind of came later mm-hmm. to a lot of people. But you know, you were that early being able to kind of pick out Dicko yeah. as being that you know that that one that singular voice that kind of really grabbed your attention. Yeah, I, I was lucky in, in the note. I saw a lot of stuff early on, but unlucky that I was never, never able to do it consistently <laughs> because you were at the, at the mercy of magazine distribution. For sure. Uh, and, and I was very lucky in that my first exposure to Jack Kirby was the old Sky Masters, the Space Force newspaper strip. Oh, wow. We had a little crummy, crummy hometown daily newspaper that had maybe five strips in it you know it was like freckles and alley oop <laughs> and uh, a couple other things but they ran Skymaster of the Space Force for at least the first year or so of its, of its run you know and those early stories inked by Wally Wood and I looked at him and this is amazing look at this stuff you know who's doing this and, and it was signed Kirby Wood Kirby Wood he's really good <laughs> and, I, and it and then later, I, I, I happened across a, uh, uh, it was an, either an Adventure Comics or, or a World's Finest with one of the, the Green Arrow stories that, that uh, Jack Kirby had, had worked on. And I'm going, look, it's Kirby Wood, the guy from the newspapers. He's doing Green Arrow. This is great. Yeah. And, and, and then, you know, I sort of transferred that to the double life of Private Strong and the Adventures of the Fly, of which 
Jack worked on just a couple issues. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, oh, I love this guy. This is wonderful. And, and then I didn't see any more until you know, I discovered Marvel Comics. You know? Wow. Oh, it's him. It's Jack Kirby. Okay, well, who's Kirby Wood? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome, though. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, I don't usually like to jump way too ahead, but uh, I can't help that, you know, with your you know initial kind of love of Spider-Man coming from Romita and then, again, this love of Ditko, you got to work with both of these men in the future, like, in, during your yeah. career. How much yeah, of an out-of-body so moment was that? Oh, that, that was just amazing. Because it was, you know, well, when I worked on staff at Marvel, you know, John Romita was right down right down the hall <laughs> office making our corrections and doing cover sketches and things and I got to work with him initially because one of my first jobs at Marvel was putting together the reprint books and sometimes we need a new cover and I'd get to talk to him and he said well we, what do you think we need and he says well how about something like that oh that's good I like that <laughs> and uh, you know I, I, I later years later I got to, to uh, write a story that he drew where there was like it was something like flashback month or something at Marvel yeah it was, doing like yeah it was untold tales of Spider-Man minus one yeah and you know so th- th- this was when when uh, Kurt Busiek and Steve Olaf were still doing untold tales of Spider-Man mm-hmm. and they said well we want to do a, a a minus one issue of this I'm going and Kurt's too busy so would you be interested in going well yeah but we're already doing stories about Spider-Man's early years. What would the minus one uh, be? You know, you know, Pete in kindergarten. <laughs> they said, "Well, uh, no, that wouldn't." Uh, you got any ideas? I'm going. How about his parents before he was born? Because they were both supposed to be CIA agents. And, and Tom Brevoort said, "Yeah, that sounds good. Go with that." So, <laughs> put the thing together yeah took the title from an old uh, from uh, uh, Johnny Riffer's uh, theme to Secret Agent you know, <laughs> there's a man who lives a life of danger you know. <laughs> now wow, I, when you do that when you do that book how, like when like when they kind of came with you to do it did you know that John Reader was going to be the one who ends up penciling it at that time or how did they bring him out, you know out to, they, to do that they said you know we'll come up with an idea and it says we th- we think uh, John has has time to draw it, and I'm going, really, great, you know. So I I threw in a, uh, I, I said, you know, John loves Milton Kniff. You know, okay, I'll describe you know, the, the the femme fatale as like a Teutonic dragon lady, you know, and and, and he really got into it. It was just like, oh, this is great. It's just beautiful, beautiful artwork. It was so much fun to write. When you wrote for him, like how detailed a plot did you give him? Obviously, considering like you know he obviously was used to you know not always getting the most detailed plots back in the sixties. Like how much of a plot did you give him? Boy, it's been a while, but uh, it seems to me that like I broke you know the plot down page by page, you know, and saying you know there's, there's this happens and this happens and this happens and next page this happens fairly loose because. I knew that John was going to draw it. Mm-hmm. I'm going, this is, you know, this is one of the world's greatest artistic storytellers. It would be crazy you take him by the hand. You know, he's going to be taking me by the hand and show me how to do this. Mm-hmm. 
and, and it was just, you know, was, and, and I, you know, I, I said part of it in, uh, in India, and I dug through a bunch of old, uh, I think, National Geographics and found some shots. And here, here, here's like a street bazaar in, in India. <laughs> and he just did a beautiful, beautiful job with it. Sure. Now I'm curious. I'm curious how different the experience was when you were working with Steve, because Steve Ditko, when you worked on Speedball, like that's a very different project. And like, how did you approach that? And how did you get tapped to do that and work with him? And did you have to pass a, a Ditko test? Yeah. Well, with with with, uh, with Steve, I, I'd written a couple of stories that he'd drawn before that. Hmm. There was like. Uh, Untold Tales of the Marvel Universe that was in wound up in What If hmm. that Mark Grunwald asked me to, to, to can you do a six page story that encapsulates the entire history of the cat people and going well I'll try put <laughs> 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 that together and Dicko wound up drawing that it would, and magnificently and there was an, uh, an Avengers annual I, I can't can't remember the number offhand. Someone out there will is suddenly piping up. It was number so and so. But uh, I, I come up with this uh, story uh, that's set at, at the observatory that, that Bruce Banner had had during the brief period where he had control over over the Hulk. And you know, I said this thing is sitting there and. Someone should re- decommission it because villains are going, ooh, Bruce Banner, electronics and, and machinery and stuff. I'm going to steal this. So they, the Avengers and the Fantastic Four get together and do a special project to, to decommission the thing. And I figured that I wanted to use Arnim Zola, the, the character that, that uh, Jack Kirby had come up with during his second run of Captain America. And I'm going... Boy, you know, I really like this character, but there's probably maybe two or three artists who could draw it without making them look silly. Mm. You know, because he's, he's supposed to be threatening, but it's a, it's a guy with an electrode for a head and his face is on his chest. You know, a, 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 a real Kirby character. I'm like, I love this thing, but, you know, I've come up with this story and I really want to do it now, but well, who can we get to draw it? You know, this is this guy's busy, and, and this guy can't do it, and, and and Jack is working in animation, so he, and he's not available. And I, I was sort of discussing this on the phone with Tom DeFalco, and he says, "Well, this might sound strange, but what about Ditko? Ditko would be great. Is he available? I think so. Let me check. You know, and says, "Yeah, he can do it." You know, he can't start for a week because he's on jury duty this week. And I went, wow, Steve Ditko on jury duty. I would not want to be the accused. <laughs> you better have a good alibi because, you know, you know, the foreman of the jury is Mr. A. Look out. And, uh, but, you know, and, and he was, I, I don't know what happened. <laughs> I don't know if, if he was even picked, you know, or, or what the case was or what. But at any rate, he started on it the next week. So this is a 40-page story. And at the end of the first week, I had the first 20 pages. Oh, wow. And at the end of the second week, I had the next 20 pages. And they were all great pages. You know? And, and then John Byrne wound up doing, you know, finished inks over the thing. And it just looked incredible. 
That's an interesting. That's such an. I, I, I can't remember it offhand now because I, I think I have read it, but it's interesting to even think of burn inks over Dicko pencils. It seems like such an interesting mixture of two amazing flavors. Yeah, and and, and it, it looks beautiful. It looks looks gorgeous. It's been collected two or three ways to Sunday by now because it's an Avengers story. And hey, they made some movies about those guys. They did. So, so, they, so, so I- they've been reporting Avengers stuff like crazy. Thank you. The, uh, my creditors, thank you. But, uh, <laughs> but so, the, yeah, how did that, that how did, out great? Oh, sorry, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, I was just going to say, like, so I mean, those were you know kind of incidental projects here and there with, with that Difco was involved with. But mm-hmm. how did Speedball yeah. come about? Because obviously that was a more ongoing project. Right. With with Speedball, uh, I'd just started uh, picking up some assignments at DC. I was uh, working on. Uh, one of the Superman titles, and uh, I was at, at uh, I think might, maybe might have done the first issue of Power of the Atom at that point, and was gearing up to do Starman with Tom Lyle. And Howard Mackey calls me uh, and says, look, I got this project I want you to do. And I said, Howard, thank you so much for thinking of me, but I'm really backed up. I've got like three monthly books on my plate, you know, and a weekly strip, and I just don't see any way that I'd be able to do this. And he says, well, all you have to do is script it because the artist is plotting it, and and I'm going, well, well, that's really nice, but I'm not sure, still not sure I'd have the time to, and he says, let me tell you who it is. <laughs> yeah. And I said, okay. He says, Steve Ditko, and it's a new character that he's co-created with Tom DeFalco. And I said, all right, send me the pages, I'll start working on it. I couldn't turn that down, are you crazy? And uh, so I did like that. I, I forget. Six or seven issues, and I was crazy because I, w- I was starting to burn the candle at both ends again and I wasn't as young as I'd been in earlier years and I thought boy you know I'd love to stay with this but I really don't have the time and uh, Joe Duffy had wound up scripting a few issues here and there and I think he had written a couple and I, and I told the editor who was no longer Howard like I, I started on, on the, the on Speedball for, for two reasons uh Howard Mackey, his old friend, had asked me to work on it and was working with Ditko. And midway through the first issue, Howard got busy with a bunch of stuff and it went to Terry Cavanaugh, I think, who, who was a good guy, but we didn't talk that much and I didn't get much feedback and, I, and there was some miscommunications on things, and which, which is how, how Joe wound up doing a couple of stories in, in there. And I'm reading, I'm looking at it going, Joe's doing a good job on this. This is she, she's really good with Ditko, and, and yeah, and so when I you know, you know came hat in hand over the phone and said, yeah, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I just don't have the time on my schedule. Everything's uh, deadlines are eating everything up. And I said, You've got Joe. Go with her. You know, she she's already doing a great job on this. Mm-hmm. Said, oh, okay, thank you. you know, was it hard to do something like that because you're working with again like this you know this 
you know, monster talent of the industry who, again, had such an impact on you when you were younger and was an amazing, you know, artist. Was it hard to kind of bow out of that? But also, you know, obviously... It, yeah, it, it was. But, but you know, it, but it was mainly like, in a way, playing script doctor for Ditko. Hmm. Because here's, here's how the speedball stuff would arrive. I'd, you know, I'd get a package and, you know, it would be full-size photocopies of Ditko's pencils uh, and along with that would be like you know 11 by uh, yeah, 8 and a half by 11 typewriter paper you know drawn off into panels to correspond to each page with his rough dialogue for this stuff okay and I'm going you know to, to let me know what was going on I'm going well this is great you know this is this needs to be gone over and turned into a regular script because if we used all of Steve's suggested dialogue, wouldn't have to ink it. You know, it would have been, you know, copy, top to bottom, you know, panel to panel. And I'm going, so, okay, so I need to take this and distill it and turn it into people talking, mm-hmm. which is what I did. Which, which was cool. It was a lot of fun, and I learned a lot about storytelling from that. And I've, I've, I've been so lucky working with a, a lot of artists who are really great storytellers, and I've always learned something from working with them. Hmm. Do you have a favorite Steve Dicko story? Oh, gee. Uh, let me... Th- that would... Uh, let me think. The... Uh, well, I, I always loved... Uh, the Blue Beetle in Question stories that he did for, for Charlton. Those, those were really sharp. Love those characters. And uh, they, they were okay when DC bought them, but it was like, you didn't really have to change them that much. They were good characters. You just Better production values. <laughs> the better printing that DC had as opposed to Charlton's sort of, you know, potato press thing, you know, Anyway, that's another story. But uh, I loved loved all of his Spider-Mans and his Doctor Stranges. And, uh, you know, it was like the Creeper. Oh, I loved Ditko's Creeper. Such a great character. And, and DC never seemed to know what to do with him. Mm. You know, I, I would, like, about once a year when I was working regularly at DC, I said, you know the creeper, and someone said someone already has dibs on him. Okay, <laughs> and a year would go by, and nothing would. A year would go by, and nothing would be done. And I say, uh, the creeper. Oh yeah, no, we don't think the time's right for him. Okay, another year goes by. I actually did a, a a full proposal for the creeper at one point, and it sat on one editor's desk until he went freelance, and then it went to another editor, who mm. called me up and thanked me for submitting it. But he, he says, he says, this is interesting, but I really think the character needs more of an edge. <laughs> and I'm going, really? And what I said was, really? What I thought was, this is a character who has a red lion mane, <laughs> is canary yellow, skulks around in the dark, and leaps out at the bad guys, laughing like a maniac. And you think the book needs more of an edge. Hmm. <laughs> I don't think you understand this character at all. And 
if you're going to be the editor of a, of a, a Creeper project, I don't think I want to be part of it. Mm. So I said, oh, okay, thank you, and, uh, <laughs> and left it at that. Is he, does he kind of remain one of those like, kind of characters you wish you could scratch that itch and you could actually do something with him? Oh, yeah. There's, uh, you know, I, I, wish I, could, I wish I could write the Creeper for DC and I wish I could write Machine Man for, for Marvel. Mm. You know, those, those are my two. What's the point in time I, I would have liked to have written Hawkman? But he's been through so many incarnations, I can't keep track of who he is these <laughs> days. Yeah. Which one would you want to write? Like, which one in your mind's eye would you be thinking of when, if you were to try to put together a Hawkman? Uh, I, I like uh, the uh, the uh, the Thanagarian guy who, who works in a museum, as written by Gardner Fox and drawn by Joe Kubert and, and Murphy Anderson. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, that was you know, those were great stories. I love those stories. For sure. If you ever got a chance to do a Machine Man, like which I mean, which artist that still works today would you want to illustrate it? Wow, uh, Ron Friends actually would do. I think do a great Machine Man. Yeah, I, I got to write a a one page Machine Man story for what was it uh, Marvel Comics number one thousand one? That's right. Yes, uh, that, that Jerry Ordway drew and did a beautiful job on and you know, I'm going oh I wish I could work with Jerry on this character on a regular basis because this is so beautiful and uh, yeah I, I've every time someone comes out with a new incarnation of Machine Man I'm, I'm reading it and I'm going well that's almost there but not quite what I would do hmm. yeah. and yeah I Occasionally, I would I would jot down some notes and things, and I think I know a way to do Machine Man the way I'd like to that would not that would not contradict any of the stories that have already appeared with him in like was it Next Wave or yeah. Agents of Sword or Machine Man's been in so many different places, you know, dressed so many different ways. I'm going what's Oh, this is Machine Man. Why is he wearing a top coat? Is he cold? <laughs> He's a robot. Why is he wearing a top coat? Oh, well, you know, it's like, it's this year's fashion. Okay, fine. <laughs> and then if you ever okay. did get to do a Creeper, who do you think would be able to kind of bring that Ditko energy to it? Uh, once again, Ron Friends. <laughs> you, know, you know, Tom Grummet would, would, would do a, a great creeper, I think. Oh yeah. You know, there's there's there are a bunch of 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 artists who can draw, you know, really, you know, arcane, weird, acrobatic characters, and uh, Mike Norton. Mike Norton would do a good creeper, I think. Oh yeah, absolutely. So I jumped way ahead, but I never actually covered like how do you, how do you end up in the Marvel offices as an editor to begin with? Oh well, uh, that's easy. I was unemployed, <laughs> and uh, <laughs> you know so, some some people I knew I'd known from Indiana when we were working on fanzines together had wound up you know through various circuitous paths at Marvel. And I got a call from them one day and it said, "Are you still looking for work?" And I said, "Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm you know." been sending out resumes and things and getting nowhere and collecting unemployment and watching daytime TV, which is really awful. <laughs> and they said, well, would you be interested in testing for a proofreading job at Marvel Comics? And I said, uh, sure. 
they said, well, when can you be here? And I said, tomorrow. You know, I <laughs> hung up, called the airport. I, I need a flight to, okay, fine, Craig. And this was back before deregulation when you could you could get reasonably cheap fares mm-hmm. from Indiana to, to New York and went in, stayed on some guy's couch for, you know, way too long and uh, went in, uh, took the proofreading test and uh, passed it, uh, I guess, because they hired me. <laughs> and uh, then I was an assistant editor at Marvel, you know, Found a, you know, found an apartment with someone else to share for a while, and then until I could afford an apartment of my own, and that went on for a while. In my, in my, I think I mentioned my first uh, job as an assistant editor at Marvel. What well, was twofold: putting together uh, the regular reprint comics and uh, proofreading the letters pages. Hmm. So that was, you know, so I kept up to the things, and, and you know. I, once I was there, I was a warm body and uh, could, you know, pick up a little freelance on the side, you know. Hey, we need this done overnight. Okay. <laughs> okay, it didn't stink. Give them some more. <laughs> and, uh, you know, since, since, I was, since I was there, I was a warm body and, and they figured I could put sentences together in a, in a reasonably coherent fashion. You know, if someone was about to miss a deadline, you know, I'd you know, pick up the slack and, and do a fill-in issue or something. And uh, that went on long enough that I wound up getting regular work. When, I mean, what, uh, this is maybe a dumb question, but like you, you said you were kind of between jobs when you kind of got the gig. What had you been doing before that? Like what, what was your kind of occupation? Yeah, I, or? I, I, uh, my, my degree is in radio and television, and I was working at a, uh, an AM radio station in Indianapolis, Indiana, WXLW. <laughs> Call in to win, but you know, I, I wasn't on. I wasn't on the air per se. I, I would occasionally I, I would be an odd voice in a commercial. Mm-hmm. But my main job was was uh, traffic, which is not doing the traffic report. It's you know com- compiling the uh, broadcast logs so that the disc jockeys know what commercials to air and when, and uh, traffic and continuity as continuity. If uh, someone sold, you know, a local pizza place a commercial and they didn't have a commercial of their own, I would write it. Hmm. What was and, it like? And, uh, let me tell you, writing writing commercial copy is great training for writing fiction <laughs> because you, you're you're writing these little mini dramas that are thirty or sixty seconds long, and you're using that time to tell a little story and convince someone to buy something that they may not even really need. Or if they do need it, they need to buy this brand and not that brand. Now, what was it? I'm just curious. Like, that was such an interesting period to be in radio. Like, did you you think that, you know, that was going to be, could lead to a career in radio? Or what was your feeling at the time? Yeah, well, it it, it was my so-called career Mm -hmm. for about two and a half years. I mean, I started working at a college radio station when I was at Indiana University and uh, wound up with this job at uh, a radio station in Indianapolis after graduation. And uh, worked there for oh, about two and a half years, and you know it was like 
okay, I'm, I'm working in, in radio, you know, I may not work at this station forever, you know, I may work at a different station, because there's always a lot of turnover in, in radio. And uh, although I did outlast two or three disc jockeys and a couple of newsmen and it seems like about a dozen salespeople, uh, the only people who were still there when I left, uh, well, I think the engineers were, were still there. <laughs> but, you know, it, it changed, the station changed format once, changed ownership, and we finally got a, a station manager who didn't like me and uh, had a friend who was out of work. Mm. So suddenly, I was out of work. Yeah, I, I, I was I was tickled uh, about a year or so later after I was already out of radio and working in comics that the, the uh, station manager had been fired after three or four months and, and so was his friend. So that was that turnover. It's like, ah, too bad. You know, <laughs> I was in that job for two and a half years. Could have kept me. <laughs> Yeah. Obviously it worked out okay for you though. Hmm? I said obviously it did work out okay for you though. Same thing worked out. Yeah, it, it's every time I've been fired, I've wound up with a better job. Hmm. So you know, <laughs> hey, okay. So when when you are that warm body in the office, like how how fast and furious was everything kind of running? Because I mean, in that period, you know, there was you know there were some late shipping books. There was a lot of kind of uh, running by oh, the seat yeah. of your pants at times. What was it like to to see all that? Yeah, it, it was it was kind of nuts. It was it was, it was a, well, it was an absolutely crazy job, but it was fun at the same time. Uh, it's it's sort of hard to explain if you haven't been there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you've been to college, right? Yeah. Okay. Remember when you were in college and you'd be up all night finishing a paper? It was really important to your grade point. And you'd wrap up at like four or five in the morning and you'd be so wired you couldn't go to sleep? Yep. Yeah. And, and, and all, all, without the uh, influence of mind-altering drugs, <laughs> you just be like, ah, yeah, you know, let's just let's go to the all-night diner and eat cheeseburgers and eggs, okay? <laughs> well, yeah, and and then someone would say something would strike you as so funny that you would just, you know, turn into Jello and slide out of your chair. You know, there was. Working, working at Marvel in the in the editorial bullpen was like a lot like that because, you know, things were coming in late. You know, this is this is back in this is back in the days before FedEx. You you were depending on the U.S. mail to get stuff to you. <laughs> you know, and, and you know, sometimes it would be mailed on time and it wouldn't show up until it was late. You know, and and, and sometimes you suspected the people who said that they swore up and down that they'd send it to you on time. Maybe didn't. But you'd, you'd be in there, so, you know. Legally, it was like a nine-to-five job. But actually, <laughs> actually, I'd be getting there like 7 to 7.30 in the morning and, and 
working proofreading stuff and putting things together, and other people would be filtering in. You know, first guy there puts the coffee on, okay. And uh, the great thing I discovered early on is if you can get there and start working before nine o'clock, you can get a lot of work done mm. because the phones don't really start ringing until nine. Mm. And then you've got lots of interruptions all day. So you know, it gets there at seven, seven thirty. After I remember, uh, I in the early days I'd sometimes get there before John Verporten, who was production manager at the time, and he was usually the first guy there, except for me. And I think the second or third time he found me sitting in the hallway proofreading something that I'd taken home the night before. <laughs> he said, "He said, here, have a key." Oh, thank you. <laughs> and I just let myself in, you know, put the coffee on, start working. You know, and it would be, you know, it's like legally a nine to five, but a lot of us would be working until maybe six, six thirty that evening. You know, and and then we'd say, okay, you know, we'd, we'd go some to some diner someplace, you know, have dinner. You know, if there was a new movie out that sounded good, we'd go to the movie and go home, sack out, get up the next day, do it again. You know, and it was crazy, and there wasn't a lot of money in it, but it was fun. Mm-hmm. It was actually fun. I wouldn't do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Because that's 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 fine. That's fine when 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 you're in your twenties and your bones are still soft. But uh, you know, now I look and I'm going, yeah, I don't want to do that. Actually, I did have a listener question that came in. That was, you know, would you ever consider, you know, being an editor again or, or editing a book? Would that be something that would ever interest you? Uh, I don't think so. You no. know, it it was fun while I did it. I think I did okay. I don't know that I did that great a job. I. I uh, I think uh, the people who were working for me produced a lot of good material, and I got it mostly out on time. So uh, I don't think I don't think we had to go to any reprints uh, for uh, for any of the books I was working on mm-hmm. during my what was it two years or so as an editor. And uh, but you know, of course, and that was a complication when I when I became a full editor. You know, I was there as an assistant for the first year and a half, two years. And then uh, Jim Shooter became editor-in-chief and says, you know, it's impossible for one person to edit all these books. You know, when it was Stan and he had a dozen books, yeah, just. But now we've got like 40 books. <laughs> you know, and one person can't, can't really edit 40 books a month. And so he set up the, the uh, group editor system, and I, and I was editing. It was, it was sort of the Avengers-oriented uh, titles, because there was the Avengers and Captain America and Iron Man and Ms. Marvel. And then I think it was it, uh, uh, Master of Kung Fu and Warlord of Mars for a brief period, and Marvel 2 on one and Spider-Woman and uh, briefly Power Man and Iron Fist hmm. and well I'm forgetting something Marvel Premiere and Marvel Spotlight which alternated you know sort of tryout books and uh, oh yeah uh, X-Men X-Men I wonder what happened to that title <laughs> 
What was it like working on a book like that with Chris? Oh, that was fun. That was great fun because we, you know, it's like this sort of, you know, back and forth, you know, balancing act between uh, Chris and John. And, you know, and it was almost, almost always Tom Wozniakowski on letters hmm. and Glennis on coloring. And, uh, and of course, Terry Austin on inks, just, just amazing. Terry, Terry is so good. And it was, it was like, you know, it was like, hi, we're the young punks putting out, you know, putting out a, uh, a comic book. How do you like it? <laughs> well, it's interesting, too, because yeah, I guess you and Chris kind of were both kind of staffers in and around the same period, right? Yeah, Chris, Chris was still, uh, he was an assistant or associate editor. Like, you know, the titles have changed over the years, so I'm not sure exactly, but he was, he was sort of like the main assistant to the editor slash editor-in-chief of the color comics and, and but he was already when i came to work at marvel in, uh, late in december of 1975 chris was already starting to gear up to go freelance because he was getting so many stories so many books that you know he didn't have time to do to, to, to have a staff job and write the x-men and whatever other books he was he was doing that because it went, went through a different, lot of different you know, Iron Fist mm. still at that time and uh, he, he started on Marvel 2 and 1 around then it was, it was, he had a, had a full plate it was like 3 or 4 books a month mm-hmm. you know which, which will keep you off the streets because uh, I know because while I was editing that dozen or so titles uh, I was also writing The Incredible Hulk and Doctor Strange, which is, you know, a book and a half because the Hulk was monthly and Doctor Strange was bi-monthly. Mm. And you can do that for a while, but eventually you really need to sleep. <laughs> and uh, and I, I realized, you know, first I gave up uh, uh, Doctor Strange because Ralph Macchio was there to take it over and, and, then, and then Chris came on to Doctor Strange. And... Uh, then I gave up the Hulk, and uh, I believe Bill Matlow took that over within an issue or two. And so I was—I had time to sleep again, but I wasn't enjoying my job as much because I, I really enjoyed the writing mm. and and editing. You know, it's editing is a different—it's a related set of muscles in your head, but it, it's different, and, and it wasn't as satisfying to me after having written those other other books. And uh, I think it was Jim Shooter who, who figured this out. He called me up and says, you're not happy with your job, are you? I said, not really, no. Yeah. And he said, what would you rather do? And I said, I'd rather write comic books. And he said, well, then that's what you should do. And I said, yeah, but I can't make a living doing that. You know, I need the regular paycheck. And he says, no, 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 we, we, let's see. If you sign a contract with Marvel, I can guarantee you uh, this rate and this, and if you do at least two books uh, a month, you could make this much, and you could do this, and I'm going, huh, okay, let me think about that. I thought about it for like five minutes, and <laughs> I said, yes, yes, I think I will do that. And, uh, well, and, and then I had to find two books to write, 
and uh, I didn't want to displace anyone, but the, you know, the, there's always turnover, people taking on this project and dropping that project and everything. And uh, uh, Captain America hadn't really had a regular uh, creative team for a couple of years at that point. And I'd been the editor for, for, for a good chunk of that. And, you know, we'd just get people together, you know, and this guy would go off and do that, you know. Oh, you, there's this new movie thing, that project uh, adaptation, super special you have to do. And then, okay, we got to find a fill-in guy for this. So we were playing, like, catch-up and fill-ins on, on Captain America for a better part of a year, I think. And th there still wasn't, like, a regular team on it. And as, as I was, like, putting things in order to pass off to Jim Salakrup, who'd been my assistant and took over the books I'd uh, been the, the editor of. Uh, I, I don't remember who, but someone said, you should write Captain America. And I said, I should write Captain America. Yes, you should write Captain America. <laughs> okay. I think I'd like that. You know, so I immediately started doing research on World War II and the home front and then all the old Captain America stuff I could remember and rereading all the stuff that I liked the most. And somewhere in, in the middle of this, I was talking on the phone to, to, uh, to John Byrne and I said, hey, I'm gonna be writing Captain America. And he says, that sounds like fun. I think I wanna, I think I wanna draw it. I went, cool. <laughs> and I went in and says, John says he wants to draw Captain America. And everyone says, that's fine. You know? <laughs> and so we wound up working on Captain America. And then I'm going, okay, and this is, we're coming towards the, uh, the end of my tenure as an editor. I'm going, that's one book. I need, now I need another one. And uh, Denny O'Neill, who just started working at Marvel, uh, uh, working on the Spider-Man books, came in and said, would you consider uh, writing uh, Spectacular Spider-Man? And I went, really, you want me to write Spider-Man? I said, yeah, yeah. I said, okay, on one condition. And he looks at me funny and goes, what's the condition? And I said, we fixed the logo. Mm. So what do you mean you fixed the logo? And I says, look at the logo. And I says, the M is crooked. You know, it's been crooked since the first issue because they had to put the, the logo together in a hurry to, to meet shipping, and the M is crooked. Look, here, here's a straight edge. Look at that. Okay, straight on this side. Yeah, crooked on that side. And he went, huh? I must have looked at that a dozen times. I never noticed it. I says, well, I noticed it. <laughs> I says, okay, we'll get it fixed. You know, and I, 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 I you know, sat back at my desk and I thought, well, if nothing else, at least I fixed that logo. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and so I wound up uh, writing Spectacular Spider-Man for about, uh, oh, almost two years. And then uh, when Tom DeFalco came on as editor of the Spider-Man titles, he uh, asked me to move over to Amazing, which was fine by me because I, I, by that point I had enough confidence to think I could actually write Spider-Man. Because mm. it was like, that was the great thing about Spectacular Spider-Man. It was... Everyone thought of it as the B book. You know, Amazing Spider-Man is the A book. This is the B book. You know, it says, what's Marvel team up? Uh, it's a team up book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Spider-Man's in it. It's really his book, but you know, it's it's team up. Okay, fine. It's off to one side. So, well, 
Denny was uh, writing Amazing Spider-Man, and I was writing Spectacular. We'd like get together for, for dinner every once in a while. I says, I'll be doing this. Okay, I'll reflect it in this. You know, and sometimes he'd reflect something that I, I was was doing, and uh, and that was great. It was it was a lot of fun. But we didn't really have a regular artist on Spectacular Spider-Man, which drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. It was good training. It was good training in a way because I, I think Mike Zeck did a couple issues, and Marie Severin came on, and, and Marie was supposed to be the regular artist on Spectacular Spider-Man, and she was just a joy to work with. The problem was. Marie was always in demand for special projects. You know, at, at, at one point, she had to like take a leave from Spectacular for a couple of months because she was, I think she was like inking uh, John Buscema on uh, St. Francis, the St. Francis comic that, that uh, uh, Marvel did in coordination with the Catholic uh, diocese. Wow. And 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 there was and there there was always some big special hoodoo coloring job or something that Marie could because she was she was so good at everything. And she was always getting pulled off. So sometimes I didn't know who was going to be drawing the issue. Hmm. Uh, and it but that turned out to be good training because I, I okay, I've got to I gotta come up with a plot that's so straightforward that no matter who it goes to, they'll be able to understand it. So fine. And and that seemed to work out, and along the way, I sort of developed my chops on 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 Spider writing Spider Man because I you know, I was I was going. This is the guy that Lee and Ditko and Lee and Romita did, except he's a couple years older. Mm-hmm. Cool, you know. So and, and then when, when uh, Tom became uh, the editor of the Spider Man titles and offered me Amazing, I said yes almost immediately because Amazing had a regular penciler, mm. John Romita Jr. And he was really good. You know, and he got better every issue. You know, I I'd been John's editor when he was drawing Iron Man. You know, he was mainly doing, you know, layouts or breakdowns and with uh, Bob Layton doing finishes. But I went, This guy can tell a story. This guy is really good. And every issue got better. So that's our Iron Man, and I really saw it when we got to work together on on Amazing Spider-Man. John actually drew an issue of Spectacular Spider-Man. I think it was issue 50. You know, he's up going, this is a big deal story, and it's issue 50. You know, we need, and John had time to do it, so he, he did that. Oh, that's great. You know, I got to work with him at least once as a writer. And then when they offered me Amazing, oh yeah, <laughs> and it was it was so much fun because every issue was better than the one before. Mm. You, you could just you could just see it was like oh look what he's done this is great. <laughs> so I, I have a question about this period. So look, when you are working on Amazing now, I mean. I mean, obviously, the books did feel different from each other in terms of the spectacular and amazing. Like, amazing had access to more of the kind of core, typical cast as opposed to some of the other characters that spectacular, not that it got saddled with, but it used different realms of Peter's life. So now you're in the driver's seat of the of the A book. What was it like to finally be able to, you know, use the real, you know, the, the core cast, the ones that everyone remembers from, you know, the, the Lee Deco, Lee Ramita era? Yeah, well, I, I, I was already using a lot of them in... Uh 
in, in spectacular. Mm-hmm. The thing was, was spectacular. I was, you know, say, okay, I'm the new guy on the book. I should introduce some new characters. Mm-hmm. It was mainly villains. You know, we'll see how this. Here's here's this incidental character, but there there was like. Uh, there were actually like two supporting casts in the Spider-Man books. There, there was the college crew, mm-hmm. and there was the the Daily Bugle crew. You know, Jameson, Robbie Robertson, and, and Betty Brant was there, and Glory Grant, and all these other people whose names rhyme. <laughs> and then there were there were the the fellow TAs and and Doctor Sloan at ESU that, that Peter would interact with. It was a very complicated lifestyle. Not unlike the complicated <laughs> lifestyle of someone working at Marvel Comics, so I could really identify. And uh, you know, also with the, the amazing Spider-Man didn't necessarily have a hold on all the Spider-Man villains, the classic ones, because uh, I was able to use the Vulture and uh, and Mysterio in, in uh, Spectacular. But I'm going, you know, we've seen Spider-Man fight. Dr. Octopus about a dozen times. You know, and there are certain tropes that we've seen over and over and I don't know if the readers are tired of them, but I sort of am. You know, it's like, oh, it's Dr. Octopus. Oh, I just webbed up his, his goggles so he can't see. Now I'll go do this. <laughs> you know, and I said, let's have Spider-Man fight some guys he hasn't fought before. So he doesn't know how to fight them at first and has to figure it out. You know, and I came up with a, with a couple. I came up with Belladonna and uh, uh, the smuggler who was sort of the original Power Man character. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I always used the Vulture. I used Mysterio. So I just said, Let, let's, yeah, how does Spider-Man fight, say, Nitro? A guy who, who you know, has earned his chops fighting Captain Marvel. Here's a guy who can blow himself up and put himself back together. That's a dangerous guy, you know. <laughs> how, how does Spider-Man handle him? You know, and sometimes we do something goofy, like the Ringer, who, who's a goofy <laughs> villain who's been in Defenders, and I'm going and I say, "Well, this is great because Spider-Man not only can fight him, he can have fun while doing it, because he's jumping around making fun of the guy." So there was a little bit of that, and then as I got, and I, I carried some of that over into Amazing, because. Uh, Jr. you know, there was a lot of his father in him, but there's also a lot of uh, John Buscema, because he, he loved Buscema's work as well, and he loved Kirby. He always wanted to draw big, tough Kirby guys. And so, which is why I uh, had him fight, Spider-Man fight Juggernaut and uh, uh, Mr. Hyde and the Cobra. Mm-hmm. So these, are, these are big, early, you know, weird uh, Kirby characters. You know, Hyde and Cobra used to fight Thor. <laughs> and and by, the, by the time I, I, I played with them, they, everyone says, oh, they're not so tough. Daredevil can beat them. And I'm going, well, that's just because whoever wrote the, the Daredevil story you're thinking of didn't understand who they were. You know, look back at the first time that uh, Daredevil fought Cobra and Hyde. You know, they, they just about had it in his head. You know, so they're, they're tough. They, you know, the Hyde can, can go toe-to-toe with Thor. 
in a decent fight. And, and Cobra is slippery and sneaky, and he's sort of, you know, sort of a, a villainous uh, version of Spider-Man. You know, he zips up walls and into small spaces and does weird stuff with his his limbs. And so, yeah, that, that's that's neat. And, and Juggernaut, you know, here's a guy who can't be stopped. Okay, Spider-Man, your job is to try and stop him. Good luck. <laughs> It's interesting how many of your, you know, Spider-Man stories I mean, have been kind of. Whenever you kind of look at the the top Spider-Man list, a lot of your stories do often show up: the Juggernaut story, the original Hobgoblin saga, uh, the Kid Who Collects Spider-Man. Why do you think you mm-hmm. you connected so well with Spider-Man, and why do you think that ended up connecting so well with readers? I don't know. I I love the old Spider-Man stories. You know, by the time. <clears throat> I wound up running the character. Excuse me. Sorry, a little bit something in the back of my throat. The, uh, by the time I wound up writing Spider-Man, I you know, read <clears throat> all the stories many, many times. And, uh, excuse me, I think we're losing my voice. Hang on just a minute. You may, you may want to cut this part out. Sure. It just shows you're, re- you're actually human. <laughs> That's a little better. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I've read all the stories <clears throat> many, many times, especially the, uh, the early stories and <clears throat> the first hundred issues. And uh, that was sort of the core of who Spider-Man was. And I just tried to do stories about, about that guy and be as faithful to it as I could. With uh, with the you know the classic Juggernaut story, I mean, there's it's it's such a brilliant brilliantly done story because it's again such a simple you know stop this guy as you said like you know you're this guy's supposed to be unstoppable yeah. how does Spider Man stop this person and the marriage of your writing and John Romita is just so fantastic sorry John Romita Jr. is fantastic and how, how do you when you're working with someone like that how do you know when to kind of dial back how much descriptive you know, stuff you put in the words and uh, and even on the dialogue, because there's a, a lot of sequences here where you really do kind of hold back and let just the art tell a story. How difficult it is is it to train yourself to do that and not try and write over an artist? I mean, it obviously helps when you have someone like J.R. J.R., but, you know, just in general, oh, yeah. how do you was, do that? I mean, J.R. was so good. His storytelling was, was so good. And he really, he really started to come into his own, I think, with that first Juggernaut story. Because I, 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 I was starting to get, <clears throat> by, by that time we worked together on, on you know, three or four issues. And I knew what he could do. And I knew how much to ask for, knowing that he would do the rest. You know, because I, 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 I specified a story and a plot in the plot where Spider-Man is clinging to Juggernaut's back. You know, I ah, can't, can't knock me off. So... Juggernaut walks through a building to <laughs> scrape Spider-Man off his back, and it works, of course. Uh, you know, and Spider-Man's in the wreckage, going, "Oh, I don't believe he did that." And Jr. did this sequence. Uh, it was like a, like, a, like a four or five panel sequence of Juggernaut just starting to walk into this building, and Spider-Man like, "Oh no, you're not gonna!" <laughs> Comes out the other side, no Spider-Man on him, and I'm going. That was great. 
I don't have to explain what's going on. It's really obvious. You know, it, it's just, that's, and that's the wonderful thing about working the Marvel method of, you know, plot, art, script, is because, you know, I'll come up with something and the artist draws it, I'm going, that's exactly it. You know, no, I can just, you know, do the dialogue because I don't have to explain what's going on. It's all there in the pictures. I think it was John, John Buscema had, had a wonderful thought on this one time for, for comics artists. He says, you're drawing silent movies. Hmm. And I'm going, yeah. And, and then some schlub like me comes in and has a dialogue. You know, and, and if the if the storytelling's all there, you know, the dialogue doesn't have to explain what's going on because it's obvious from the artwork and the, the dialogue you can get into the characters' heads about what they're thinking, about what they're feeling, and that's comics. Mm. Getting back to your comment before about you know trying to create new villains and new obstacles, or at least coming up with new things for Spider-Man to do. Obviously, you create the Hobgoblin, who's you know brings a yeah. sense of mystery back into the book, which you know you hadn't really had a mystery villain in, in a long time. So, what kind of prompted yeah. creating it as a mystery as opposed to just bringing out a new villain? Well, <clears throat> I was facing two things. One, I wanted to come up with some new villains, something, something to to give Spider-Man some different challenges to, to bring some fresh stuff into the story. And the readers all wanted their favorite villains back. You know, let's say Dr. Octopus again. He was just here three months ago. <laughs> but let's say this guy again. He, he, he's been here six times in the past year. You know, and the, the one thing that showed up in, in the fan mail the most, bring back the Green Goblin. Bring back the Green Goblin. And I'm going, and at that point the Green Goblin was dead. And he died pretty thoroughly on panel. You know, I, I, at that point in my career, I wouldn't have considered bringing him back. He later was brought back in a very interesting way. And I, and I, I looked at it, when I read it, I went, huh, you did it, okay. <laughs> but at the time, you know, I didn't want the Green Goblin was dead. I didn't want, you know, Harry. Harry was just crazy. He thought he was the Green Goblin. You know, he wasn't really the Green Goblin. He was the fake Green Goblin. You know, well, Mark Hamilton, well, no, he was a crazy psychiatrist on, on a power trip. He wasn't the Green Goblin either. Norman Osborn was the Green Goblin. These guys were fake Green Goblins. And it occurred to me, what if someone found a cache of, of the goblin's stuff and figured out how to use it in a different way. So we satisfy the people who want to see the Green Goblin back. But I get a new character who's not the Green Goblin and I want to have him act differently from the Green Goblin. Well, sure, he has all, all, all of the gear, all, all the, the tools of the goblin. But this is going to be a new guy. Because the Green Goblin was crazy. Norman Osborn was was crazy as a soup sandwich. <laughs> and so I, I'm going to have the new guy who became the Hobgoblin. I'm going to make him cold and cunning. Scary in his own way, but in a different way. And that's how the, how the, the Hobgoblin came to be. 
No. And, and I, the other thing was, you know, the, the other thing I cribbed from the Green Goblin was, you know, in the early stories, we didn't know who he was. Big mystery. You know, there'd occasionally be a clue here and a clue there. And I, I, I thought to myself, I want to keep this a mystery as long, for as long a period of time as Lee and Ditko and Romita kept it a, a mystery and an issue beyond. You know, if, if, look, look, I don't remember how, how many issues the, the, the identity of the Green Goblin was, was a mystery. Let, let's say it was 12. Let's say it was 20. 20 issues passed before we found out who the Green Goblin was. I wanted to do at least 21 issues before we found out who the Hobgoblin was. And it's just, it's just like, it's like everything they did and a nickel beside. <laughs> in, in fact, Paul Smith, who I was working uh, with on Doctor Strange for a while, once said that I should never reveal who the Hobgoblin is. <laughs> no, never let him know. Never let him know. It'll drive him crazy. And I said... Well, yeah, we got to pay a little fare with with the readers. Jeez, yeah, it's, you know, and I occasionally drop a clue here and there. Well, he's he's we know he's this. Oh, we know he can't be this guy. Okay, eliminate <laughs> that guy. Okay. I'm I'm always curious, like what what prompted you to kind of keep it to yourself, and uh, and when you left the book, like you know, the the secret kind of left with you. Like, what prompted that decision to keep, kind of keep it so well, close to the vest? I kept it a, a real secret at first because when well, when I plotted the first issue, you know, I had a mystery in, in mind, and I hadn't decided who the Hobgoblin was. But as I was scripting that issue, you know, giving him his voice, I suddenly realized, oh, he's this guy. So I sent the script into to Tom DeFalco, and I said, script's coming. And this is, and I figured out who the Hobgoblin is. <laughs> and he said, oh, cool, who is he? And I says, I'm not going to tell you. And he said, excuse me? And I said, if you don't know who the Hobgoblin is, you can't accidentally tell someone. You know, because if something is, he says, I know comics. You know, if someone says an offhanded comic, yeah, they'll never guess he's this guy. It's going to be all over the office. You know, in, you know, five minutes, it's going to be across the country in a day and a half. And this is before the Internet, <laughs> <laughs> because people talk to each other on, you know, it's like a phone tree. Hey, you know, so-and-so, oh, really? Ah. You know, next thing I'd be, you know, reading a, a, about it in, in Comic Buyer's Guide. And you'll never guess that the Hobgoblin is this guy. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, so I explain that to Tom, and he says, that's a good point. Okay, I'm fine with that, but when we get to towards the, the end when you decide to reveal who he is let me know first I says you'll be the first to know <laughs> <laughs> and it used to drive John Byrne crazy because he called me up and says hey I like this hobgoblin guy who is he and it says I'm not going to tell you he says what do you mean you're not going to tell me he says I didn't tell my editor I haven't told my wife I haven't told my artist and he said I told you that Guardian was going to die in, in Alpha Flight <laughs> I didn't ask you to. You just did, you just volunteered that. I'm not telling anybody. <laughs> and everyone's like, "Call me. Is it this guy?" I'm not going to tell you. Oh! <laughs> did Did anyone ever I guess it? Think I, hmm? Did anyone like? No. no? Uh, well, actually, uh, I, I think because 
we, I, you know, it, it generated an incredible amount of, of fan mail. Just you know, get things. It's this guy. It's this guy. You know, I, I think someone actually did uh, guess uh, correctly. I just didn't use that letter. <laughs> there were an amazing amount of people who thought it was Jameson. Hmm. You know, and I'm, and I'm going. That's not really who Jameson is. Yeah, Jameson can be a hard ass about a lot of things, but that's that's not really who Jonah is. So a, a true rarity in comics is, you know, developing a, a, such a, a mystery like that. And unfortunately, after you leave, you know, the, you know, the identity of that character kind of goes through a lot of different permutations, uh, not always great. And then you somehow get called back and you get to kind of write the ship and, and put the final stamp on who the character always was supposed to be. That's such a rare thing to have happen. I'm curious the circumstances yeah. of how they reached out to you, which editor was it and how you got to do this. Well, it was it was really interesting because uh, I did play fair with with Tom DeFalco because when when, uh, when I decided to to leave the title and he called me up and said that they'd offered it to him and I said you should definitely do it because he'd been my editor through most of the, of the amazing run and he really had a good handle on who the character was and I said you are the perfect choice you should do this. And he, said, and he said, I'll do it on one condition. And I said, okay, what's the condition? He says, you told me who the hobgoblin was. <laughs> so I told him, you know, and I was honest. You know, I said, it's Roderick Kingsley. And he said, really? And I said, that's who I intended to be. But you're the editor now. I mean, you're the writer of Amazing Spider-Man now. You get to decide who he is. You've seen, you've seen all the clues we've laid so far. There were a lot more that haven't been laid yet. You can make it someone else because you're the writer now. And he said, okay, I'll think about that. Hmm. And uh, I'm, 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 I'm blanking on who uh, Tom and Ron had planned uh, for the, uh, the Hobgoblin to be. I think it was Richard, I, I, Richard I Fisk, it, wasn't it? Rick, I think, it, yes, I, that's right. It was going to be Richard Fisk. And, you know, I, various things happened. You know, and I was still sort of nominally following the Spider-Man books at the time. And uh, when, when they had the, the big reveal of, of you know, the, Ned Leeds was the Hobgoblin. I looked at it and I'm going, that's amazing. That story proves that Ned couldn't have been the Hobgoblin <laughs> because of the way it was constructed. I'm going, no, see, th- these these four guys jumped him. And if he'd really been the Hobgoblin, he could have reduced th- them to red paste on the walls. But he didn't, so he couldn't have been. So I just sort of filed that away in, in the back of my mind. And every once in a while, some, some you know, new person would be a, a, the editor of Spider-Man. And I said, Oh, by the way, Ned isn't the Hobgoblin. Uh, the story where it was revealed that he was proves he couldn't be. And if you want, I'll, I'll do something. I'll do a story that, that shows who the Hobgoblin really was. And they'd go, huh? <laughs> or, or they'd go, well, that's nice, but we I don't think we should mess with that now. And I'm going, fine, offer still stands. Mm. You know, and, and eventually I got a, a call. It was, I think it was... Uh, uh, Tom Brevoort and Glenn Greenberg and they said we hear you got this story 
And I said, yeah, that's it. you're right. And they said, we really like to do it as a miniseries. And I, I said, cool. You know, and they, they said, there's one condition, you tell, tell us who he is. I said, <laughs> okay, you know, and uh, I'd followed the Spider-Man stuff enough. Luckily, Roderick Kingsley had, you know, shortly after the revelation of Ned Leeds, or almost concurrent with it, there, there was a story where Kingsley was shot. And a lot of people assumed he'd been killed. But the story where he was shot never said that. He no. just gets shot, and then we cut someplace else. And he's never mentioned again. And I'm going, that's amazing. Because you know, I, I went through it, I pulled all the research, did all the stuff, put things together, and I'm going, no one's touched this guy because they think he's dead. But nowhere in any story did it say he was dead. So all we have to do is have him show up you know, complaining about the pain in his shoulder from when he was shot a year or so ago, whenever it was. And uh, then we can set things up. And I, I went through and I set up, you know, about half a dozen red herrings, you know, people who could have been the hobgoblin, sort of reestablishing them over the course of the, uh, of the uh, miniseries. And uh, the Spider-Man office was really helpful in that, you know, I said, you know, here's a half dozen guys who could who could possibly be the hobgoblin. One of them is a hobgoblin. And so they worked appearances by these people, various people, into, you know, three or four different Spider-Man stories. Mm. You know, which was helpful. point is setting people up so, so people, you know, for me, oh, it's that guy. You know, oh, it's that guy, it's that guy. You know, and then... One of these people is the Hobgoblin. Can you guess who it is? <laughs> and it was a lot of fun. And, yeah, got to work with Ron again. Because mm -hmm. JR was kind of busy at the time. Uh, yeah. Because the Spider-Man office says, you can't have JR. Oh, okay. You can have Ron Friends. Great. You know. <laughs> and I think George Perez uh, inked the first one and wasn't able to ink the second one. A couple guys tag-teamed uh, next one, I think Bob McCloud did an issue. Mm -hmm. but anyway, it it, uh, it all worked out. I was I was I was a happy camper. So I have a particular question about it. In the first issue, you have um, one thing I always liked was that you had the the, the hobgoblin of the time, Philip Jason Philip Mackendale, mm -hmm. actually kind of out mm -hmm. to the press that he wasn't the only hobgoblin, which was cool to see in story where that was kind of referenced. And then at mm -hmm. the end of that issue, you have uh, you know Kingsley actually kill. Uh, Mackendale, and I just always wondered about the meta commentary on that. Now, I mean, I guess that character kind of outlived his usefulness, and he was never—he was always kind of a pale imitation hobgoblin compared to the original. But was that a very deliberate, you know, decision on your part to kind of clear the decks and bring back the true hobgoblin? Not really. In fact, when I was uh, putting together all my research and, and, and starting to outline the story, I, I called up the Spider-Man office and I said, "Look, because this is true." that uh, uh, not quite a year before uh, they'd gone through a, a big uh, sort of repowering of Massendale as, as, as the Hobgoblin. Mm. And, you know, I said, gee, you went to all this trouble. You know, I, I, I hate, I hate to, to, to mess that up. And it says, you know, 
here's what I can do. You know, I can I can have you know my guy put your guy on ice. I can I can have your guy beat my guy and and become the full hobgoblin at the end of it if that's what you want. Hmm. You know, I'll play nice. You know, and they said, let's get. We're having a Spider-Man conference this afternoon. We'll get right back to you. And a few hours later, I get a call and they said, if you want. You can start by having your guy kill our guy. <laughs> and I'm going, well, that's that's very generous. <laughs> so, so I did. Yeah. Uh, that's so interesting. Yeah, because all this time, like uh, knowing obviously that you know you were kind of restoring the one true hobgoblin, I was kind of figured that that was again a bit of piece of meta that you were kind of clearing the deck. So it's interesting that actually that was a suggestion from Marvel. Yeah, it was one of those things. You can start your story by having your guy kill our guy. Well, okay, that's, as I said, that's very generous, and that leads to all sorts of possibilities. <laughs> now, not long after this, you worked with Glenn Greenberg on doing the Goblins at the Gate storyline, where you actually get to bring yes. Kingsley and Norman face-to-face, which is kind of, again, when you would have originally created Kingsley, or sorry, the Hobgoblin, that would never have been an option, obviously, because Norman was dead, but now you have Norman alive. Yes, yes, yes Norman was dead at the time, but he got better. <laughs> and, uh, once, once he was there, like, like, I mean, Glenn called me up and said, yeah, I'm, I'm writing this, this uh, Spider-Man arc, and I'd like to do yeah, Kingsley versus Osborne. And I said, that sounds cool. And he says, I want, I want you to, to, to co-plot it with me. And I said, sure, that sounds like fun. And we had, we had a lot of fun. But, you know, Linda Descripting did all the heavy lifting at the end, so that's fine. Mm-hmm. But still, what, the, was the it, only... what was it like to be able to kind of, again, pit your guy against the, the, the guy, like the classic goblin? Like, it's, it's such an interesting juxtaposition because, as you said, like, one of them is crazy, the other one isn't. Yeah, but it's, it's Norman is crazy, as I said, crazy as a soup, as a soup sandwich, but, you know, he's very dangerous and very powerful, and Kingsley has a grudging respect for, for other people of power, you know, and usually the, the scene, there's a scene that, that uh, Glenn and I came up with where when, uh, Norman helps him uh, helps facilitate Kingsley's escape from uh, from custody. Mm-hmm. You know, and Kingsley's basically going, "Why so coy?" And the Green Goblin appears alongside them, and Kingsley turns to Osborne and goes, "Oh, you're good." <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's that nodding respect. Okay, here we go. Let's have some fun. I, uh, I have so many questions, and we're running short on, on our time, so I apologize. Um, I have a lot of listener questions as well, but one thing I'm curious about is how your collaborations with Kurt Busiek kind of came about, because you guys worked on some really great projects that I really enjoyed. You worked on Iron Man, Avengers Forever together, Marvel's Eye of the Camera. I'm curious how you guys kind of struck up your collaboration and how well you got, and like what has led to you guys working so well together? Well, I, I first met uh, Kurt when he was a, a young punk college student at Syracuse and he'd come down to, uh, to Ithaca to the uh, Comic Book Club of Ithaca's Ithacon uh, conventions and I, I remembered him from uh, the letters that he would 
uh, right to the letters pages in Marvel Comics because you know I read a lot of these and, and and Kurt always made good points you know about stories and, and he got it and so when when uh, he started you know his writing career you know I'd run into him and say please job on that you know to do some more things and uh, you know his his short but but sweet run on uh, Power Man and Iron Fist mm-hmm. and then what the other things so we, we kept in contact over the years and uh, you know when when Marvels came out and the first issue sold out immediately you know, I'm <laughs> going I call them and I says nice job you like your book sold so well I couldn't even find a copy so he sent me one. You know, okay, there we go. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I had a, he had a box of them, so he sent me one. And, uh, you know, we kept in touch. And, and uh, when the, the chance to collaborate on things came up, I said, yeah, it sounds like fun. Let's do that. And it was. I mean, two of those projects that I mentioned, like Avengers Forever and Marvel's Eye of the Camera, are extremely research-heavy books. Like, those are, you know, oh, you, yeah. I don't think you can yeah. get more continuity-heavy books than those. So, not only are you guys collaborating, but you guys you guys have both been so good at using and manipulating continuity in such a natural way, making it feel like it's part of that grander world and really making it part, you know, you use all the good stuff about continuity. A lot of people like to say bad things about continuity, but you guys really mine it for all the good that it's worth. And so those books especially really do that. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, how much fun it was to do the research on these books. Uh, obviously, it was a lot of work, but it must be the, the best type of work. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was a lot of work, and, and it involves a lot of outlining and, and, and research. But, oh, gee, I had to reread old Marvel comics that I love so much as part <laughs> of this job. What a what a terrible terrible burden this was! Oh me, oh my! But you know, it was it was a lot of fun because it was like Kurt and I would get on the phone and, and start yammering back and forth, and you know what 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 I couldn't remember he would, and what he couldn't remember I would. You know, it's, it's like no, this this you know Tower was in this story, not Frenzy. Oh right, you know, so we got to do that. Yes. <laughs> oh no, the Punisher was in this issue, not that issue. Right. Okay, let's fix that. <laughs> we did. We did an interview for uh, uh, for the the eye of the camera, and it was like we were both on the phone, you know, talking back and forth to the interviewer, and, and Kurt says, and Roger came up with this great scene with with the Wolverine, and, and I'm going. Wait a minute! I thought you came up with that scene. <laughs> you know, by that point, we couldn't remember who had done it. One of us did, but or maybe we did it simultaneously. I don't know. But uh, yeah, it was it was it was fun. It was great fun. Mm-hmm. It took forever sometimes, it seemed, because the uh, the artist, as good as he was, you know, that wasn't his day job. Mm. <laughs> Now, the last year, as part of Marvel's 80th anniversary, you got to do the uh, Avengers Loki Unleashed one shot. Uh, what was it like to be able yeah. to revisit the Avengers, uh, you know, specifically, you know, your Avengers, your era, and tell this story with Loki? That was that was great fun because I'd wanted to do a story with Loki, and I, I was when, when I was uh, towards my, the end of my run on the Avengers, I was already looking down the road. Two Avengers 300. I'm going, 300, we got to do a big special 
blowout issue. And since Loki was responsible for the Avengers coming into being in Avengers 1, it would be great if in Avengers 300, Loki got himself into some big fix and the Avengers saved him. And you have to know that that would really piss him off. <laughs> because not only is he responsible for this ragtag group of, of mortals and, and demigods coming into being and who have uh, occasionally been a thorn in his side, now he owes them. And Loki doesn't like that. <laughs> but I never got to the best story. Never even got to set it up. But I remembered the, uh, the vague notion of the story when they asked me to write uh, the, the, the one shot that became Loki Unleashed. And in fact, I, my, my original title for it was Avengers Full Circle. Mm. But they said, that's a great title, but we're, we already have a book called Spider-Man Full Circle will be coming out around the same time. That's so right, I yeah. Get that. <laughs> people expect them to tie into each other, and they don't. Uh, and they said, we want it to take place during sometime during your... And, and I found this gap uh, between uh, the uh, uh, Avengers Under Siege storyline and the uh, Assault on Olympus storyline. There's a story that in between there that establishes that about a week has passed. I'm going, cool, during that week, <laughs> I can have this story take place. And you know, who are my Avengers at that moment? And I was looking around and I realized, gee, I can have most of the Avengers who are in the Avengers movies in this. I can even have Doctor Strange in it. Yeah. Uh, well, and the Doctor Strange uh, category, we, I'd always meant, during the, during the brief time I was working on Guardians of the Galaxy, mm -hmm. I thought it would be cool to, to, to have Sessinek as, as a, uh, an adversary in one of their stories because he had originated in the 31st century. Never got a chance to do that. Hmm. It, and, you know, of course, Sessinek has, has the connections with Doctor Strange from the Englehart Brunner stories. And I'm going, okay, Sessinek started in the 31st century and is going back in time, you know, gathering more and more mystical energy around him as he goes back to, to the Big Bang. And I said, so, at any point between... You know, the beginning of time in the 31st century, we can have Sessinek appear because he's a time traveler. <laughs> and I'm going, okay, then Sessinek is the guy that Loki gets in trouble with. And one thing led to another, and they all, in, in fact, I, I went back to, to check through uh, Walter Simonson's uh, Thor stories at the time, and, okay, Loki's here, and this happens, and then there's a gap of a certain amount of time and something like this has happened. Okay, okay. so Loki, between this issue and this issue, fits into this story. It, it, it all just, it was, it was the old Marvel serendipity again with every, all the pieces just sort of falling into place. Mm -hmm. There you go. Huh, I guess the story was meant to be.
One thing that that comes out from that is you know something I like so much about how you world build is again how you as I said use continuity and the fact that like when you read through this one shot it does fit in seamlessly and you write it as if it's just part of the ongoing narrative it's not you know that you're telling a special yeah. story you know you're you're dropping editor's notes all over the place about you know where this where this fits in you're, they're making references to things that would have happened at the time and as a fan of that era like it's just so much fun to go back and read it because again you could just read it right after your other issues and feel like you haven't missed anything or that nothing extra oh, well, has been added well, Thank you. It's like that's the great thing about you know the Marvel universe. There's all this stuff out there, and so anything can turn up at almost any time. I mean, years ago when I was asked to write the one shot that became Avengers number one and a half, mm. you know, and so they, uh, Tom Breaver called me up and said, "We got this great pinup shot." of the original Avengers that Bruce Timm did. And it's just great. And we asked him if he'd like to do a story with those characters. And he's going to have time in about six weeks. <laughs> if you can get us a story, you know, it takes place back then, you know, you know, Bruce Timm will draw it. I'm going, oh, I can't pass that up. I can't pass that up. You know, so I, I sat down and I'm looking through here and I said, and I'm going, well, I could come up with a new villain, but why haven't we ever heard of him before and everything? I got out my, all my old indexes of, you know, what's happening in this story and what's happening in that story and I realized, you know, Dr. Doom is at large uh, during this period. And this is just after this issue of the Fantastic Four and before we see him again and he had this big ship and the Avengers could fight him (laughs) so oh boy this is great Marvel serendipity right Marvel serendipity (laughs) nothing like it so last year you worked on this great, you know, uh, uh, Marvel 80th uh, one shot. Uh, where is the next place we can look for Roger Stern work? Because uh, people love reading new Roger Stern stories. What's nice, actually, I will say though, is that so, there have been so many collections of your material that have been coming out in the last decade. Um, there's those beautiful omnibus of all your Spider-Man work, uh, which is you know mm-hmm. uh, just a, a beautiful tome, and your introduction is really fantastic as well. You have some great stories. One story I didn't ask on this episode maybe on a future episode about uh, Amazing Spider-Man 206, which is such a great story. Um, but uh, what, what can you tell us about work you're working on right now? Well, actually, uh, I'm, 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 I'm so lucky because I get to work with Ron Friends again. We're doing some stories for a little company in, uh, in uh, California called Sit Comics. Hmm. A fellow named Darren Henry, who... Uh, works in television, uh, he's worked on Seinfeld and the Ellen Show, like a Disney and UK stuff. And he's put together uh, uh, the sitcomics uh, universe. And uh, the, the way it goes is we do a series of stories and they appear as web comics on the website, uh, which is www dot sitcomics one word dot net mm-hmm. and uh, when it's a three part say we do we do a three part story uh, that you can 
read digitally through, through uh, on the you can download from their website for a small fee. And then when the story is completed, it's printed all under one cover. So we're talking about a like a sixty-four page comic book for three ninety nine. Oh wow! Uh, and Darren calls them the binge book format because. <laughs> This is like this is like people binging on Netflix, right? Oh, I can watch the entire season in one night, you know. And, and yeah, you're worthless the next morning, but you had a great time, didn't you? <laughs> uh, so, so this is the binge book because he said, you know, remember for, for those of, of a certain age who uh, bought their comics on newsstands and on spinner racks at drugstores back when there were such things, you know, you'd always miss an issue. You were always missing an issue, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and even if, you, sometimes even if you had a comic shop in your area and you got there too late, you know they were out. And they'd have to reorder it for you. And you'd have to wait. And you know, maybe you'd still miss it. With the binge book, you can't miss an issue because it's all under one cover. <laughs> so there's the whole story. And, and you know, like Darren, Darren likes to, told me he says he likes to think of the binge books as like the greatest hits of super hero comics eras because it's got the format you know I mean the size format of the golden age and it's got that sort of fun freshness of the silver age and it's got the 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 angst and complexity of of the bronze age (laughs) And, and and but and it has the diversity and the paper quality that we have today you know so which which is sort of the and it's you know all in color for three ninety nine. Which is, uh, considering, you know, what comics go for these days, that's a pretty good buy. Yeah, it is. Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's, it's wonderful. It's... You know, I'd buy a few myself if he wasn't giving them to me for free. But, <laughs> you, know, you know, when you work on these things, you have to have a few perks. Absolutely. But but uh, so, but uh, Ron and I are are working on on a on sort of the the, the, the superhero group book of of the sitcomics universe, uh, Heroes Union. Hmm. And uh, Ron's been been drawing uh, the Blue Baron, and I'm going to be working on uh, on an arc of those stories with him. So, so it's going to be fun. It's going to going to be big fun. Plus, I mean, you get to work with that. That that URL again, folks, is www.sitcomics.net. And if you forget that, or this comes across too blurry, uh, our friend Google will will help you find them. And it's it must I must I must always always be nice to be able to work with Ron again because Ron is the oh, consummate it's, professional. I've yeah I've I've worked with Ron on, on Spider Man and and it's always always fun working with with Ron. You know he was part of the Superman team for a while. That's right. I, I got to work with him on on a Superman Annual one 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 of the first. Uh, Bits of, of Superman. I was. I got to do it DC, and it's always fun. It's mm. always fun. Well, Roger, thank you so much for all your time today. It's been a blast. I mean, we've only barely scratched the surface of your career because you've written so many amazing books. Um, so I am excited to, at some point in the future, hopefully have you back on. But uh, thank you so much for uh, you know talking with us today and uh, giving us some insights behind your career. It's it's been it's been great. Adam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely.